This is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and an executive coach. And today I welcome Ashley Willens to the show. Ashley is going to talk about how to reclaim your time and live a happier life. Ashley, I am really excited to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So I have done a lot of research about you. And of course, I, I've got your new book, which we're going to talk about very soon. But you are a researcher who focuses on time and happiness. And I'd love to find out how did this area of expertise come to pass? Is this something that stemmed from personal experience? How did you find this area of interest? So my area of interest is both personal and professional. I started research in a lab focused on the relationship between money and happiness. And what we were finding over and over again is that we're not very good at knowing how to spend our discretionary income in ways that are likely to promote happiness. We found over and over again in our lab studies that spending money on others promoted greater happiness than spending money on oneself. Yet when we ask people, how should you spend the next $100 to maximize your personal happiness, people thought about buying stuff for themselves more than they thought about spending money on others. And this led me and my advisor, Elizabeth Dunn at the University of British Columbia, where I did my PhD to wonder, are we also getting time wrong? And of course, uh, the book that uh, we'll be talking about today really outlines the fact that we often do get the way that we spend our time wrong in similar ways as we spend our money. And my research and my personal life sort of came to be one as I was writing my dissertation. I actually went through a divorce in my first faculty year. And at first I thought it was him, but over time I came to realize he didn't really want to move for me because I didn't leave him anything to move for. Uh, I spent all my time working and trying to be as productive as possible, which was good for my career, but not exactly good for my personal life. And so I wrote this book and, and really went down this path of trying to understand time and money trade-offs because I was struggling in my own life, despite the fact that I had just written a dissertation on the importance of valuing time over money. If I was struggling, certainly other people would probably be struggling too. So this focus on time and happiness is both a professional and a personal pursuit. Well, thank you for being vulnerable and brave and sharing your, your personal experience as well, but it, it makes your, your research all the more meaningful. So let's back up because we've got um, people listening all over the world. How can we identify those time traps, which include technology and, as you said, even chasing money? A time trap, as I define it, is something that makes us feel time poor. Like we don't have enough time to do all the things that we want to do or have to do. And really importantly, time traps will look different for everyone. Sometimes we go down the rabbit hole of technology and that's a trap for us because we don't even realize we're wasting time in that way. For some of us, it's getting obsessed about work and not knowing when to let go. So time traps will look different for everyone, but they really have this underlying theme they make us feel time poor and out of control in our lives. You know, time poor is such an interesting phrase. I, I, I can't tell you how many times I speak with people, and it's not just global pandemic 
COVID reality where they say, gosh, I'm so busy. I don't have enough time for myself. And, and I have to ask myself, is it, is it time management? Would they know what to do with time if they had it? Would they enjoy time to perhaps be idle or, or just be? What are your thoughts on that? So we would enjoy time if we allowed ourselves to have it. People who feel time rich, like they have enough time to do all of the things they want to do or have to do, are much happier, less stressed, have better social relationships than people who feel time poor. However, we have to break a lot of social norms, a lot of scripts in our mind in order to feel like we can really enjoy the leisure that we can grant ourselves. Our workplaces, our societies teach us that we should always be doing something. There's a great study by Dan Gilbert, a professor of psychology at Harvard University, and my academic grandfather uh, was my advisor's advisor, which shows that people would rather blast themselves with electric shocks, mild electric shocks, mind you, than sit alone in a room with no technology and only their thoughts. So it does take a little bit of retraining to allow ourselves to enjoy leisure and to take time for ourselves, but it is possible. So why is that? Is this just deeply ingrained in the, um, you know, the cultural norms of being productive and, and being useful? They're, they're, I know that there's something there. So tell me more. The underlying psycho- psychology behind this idea is that we are averse to idleness. Mm. We feel really stressed out when we're not exactly sure how we're going to ne- spend the next five minutes, 10 minutes, or 30 minutes. Unfortunately, this idleness aversion often gets in the way of us in pursuing personally important goals. We might focus on the urgent emails in our inbox instead of the important projects either at work or in our personal lives that we really wish we had time to get to because we're so worried. We dread these kind of idle moments. We don't often do a good job of making time to prioritize important things in our lives. And so this feeling of idleness aversion, ironically, is even more likely to happen when we feel stressed out because we just want to do one small thing. We think that's going to make us feel competent and in control of our lives, but it actually just digs us into a hole deeper into stress and overwhelm. So that when you're feeling stressed out and you have a temptation to make your inbox down to zero, that's when you need to stop and ask yourself, is this really the best use of time or am I pursuing something that feels urgent? but is unimportant. And I talk about a lot of these strategies in my own research that we need to actually force ourselves, schedule, plan to have free time because this sort of tricks our brain into overcoming this idleness aversion. If we plan for free time and we know what we're going to do with those moments of free time when we get to them, we can then more, we're more likely then to enjoy the leisure that we put in our calendar because we know it's there and we know what we're going to do when we get there. It's interesting because there is on the other end of the spectrum, this concept of being mindful and just being still and perhaps being contemplative or even meditative. And I am, it, it took me a while to get to that space and give myself grace and permission to be idle and, and to not be perpetually busy and, you know, crossing things off my list. Do you see this as a struggle for others? Yes, definitely. So not only do we have an aversion to idleness, we also 
give high status to busyness. This is the idea that busyness is a status symbol. We think that people who are busy, who are always running from one thing to another must be really valuable because if we think that things that are scarce are more valuable. So if someone's time is scarce, then we think that they must, wow, they must be a really important and valuable person. We need to start breaking that mentality down and actually see busyness as a symptom or as an illness, as opposed to something we're celebrating. I think that that's something that is really an important message to get through to ourselves is that idleness, that leisure is a source of great pleasure, uh, a source of great happiness. It reduces stress, but also really importantly, it actually has the intended effect that we're going after when we work all those hours People who are able to be mindful and to take their time off the clock and take more of their paid vacation, they're actually more productive at work and better able to really carve out time to work on those important goals that they have in their life. Ashley, this is fascinating. And we'll be right back after a quick break to continue the conversation. Your working life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, if you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to know more about. We want this podcast to serve all of your working life needs. Send me an email at caroline at carolinedowdhiggins.com. So let's get specific, Ashley. Tell me, how, how can we find time, and, and this is something I learned in your book, and fund it, right? The, the connection between funding our time, right, how we spend our money was something I hadn't considered before. Great. So I talk about three strategies in the book, funding time, finding time, and reframing time. And funding time is where I did a lot of my dissertation research and still focus on a lot of my research now which is really the idea of giving up some of our money in order to have more and better time. These are the kinds of trade-offs we make all the time without even thinking about it. It could be intentionally working fewer hours of overtime so you have more time to spend with your friends and family, or it could be very specifically spending some of your discretionary income to outsource some of your most negative and unpleasant tasks, such as cleaning or cooking if you don't like cooking. So funding time is a deliberate and intentional act of giving up some of your hard-earned money to have more and better time. Now, how do we even figure out what activities might be kind of prime activities to fund ourselves out of? One thing that I really like to ask people to do is go through a typical workday and write out all of their main activities in a day, in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. And then at the end of the day, look at those activities. Did it bring you joy? Did it bring you misery? Did it bring you meaning, even if it was somewhat unpleasant? Sometimes going for that mandatory jog doesn't feel so great at the time you're doing it, but you know you're training for that half marathon, so it brings you some meaning. And then go through all of the activities at the end of the day that are unpleasant. Is that something that you have to do, or could you spend money to get out of it? Maybe you could pay someone to do it uh, or delegate it to someone at work. So the idea is that 
You want to be thinking about how you're spending time on an everyday basis, and you want to maximize your positive experiences and minimize your negative. And one way to minimize the negative experiences you have on a daily basis is to spend money to get rid of those experiences. I like it. Thank you for clarifying. And, you know, thank you for also helping us understand this takes some thought and reflection, right? You need to get quiet and really consider these things. It's not automatic. It's not like, um, you know, you can wave the magic wand and tell everybody what to do. It's very personal, this this decision-making process. Absolutely. There's definitely not a one-size-fits-all approach to time affluence. I have so many colleagues, economists, they're wonderful, but they ask me, well, since you know so much about happiness, can you just tell me exactly the things I need to do on an everyday <laughs> in which dose to produce an optimal amount of satisfaction? And I laugh and I say, sorry, I'm going to be a source of endless disappointment to you. I cannot do that. Everyone has different goals and values, priorities in life. And for one person, cleaning might be the most blissful time of their day because they tune out, they listen to a podcast. For another person, cleaning is misery. So I can't tell you what activities bring you satisfaction or bring you misery. You have to do some self-reflection to figure that out. And then you can begin to think, well, how can I either make that activity better and view it with some satisfaction, listen to a podcast, do something else during those terrible moments? Or how can I get rid of that activity altogether? That's great. You know, it's an interesting time, Ashley. Many of us are still working from home as we navigate the uh, new reality of of COVID-19 and a global pandemic. And we're several months in. And things look different to many of us. I am still working from home and it's really impacted the boundaries of my work and my life. Do you see that in your research? Not just because of the pandemic, but the reality that those lines can get blurry. Absolutely. This is part of one of the time traps I talk about in the book, which is the idea that our technology was supposed to free us from going to the office, um, was supposed to free us from nine to five and having to go to the same physical location. But instead of freeing us from work, it's actually created this 24-7 economy because we now take our offices in our back pockets. And I think during this particular moment, the boundaries between work and home have never been so unclear. I've been doing a lot of research projects around time, money, and happiness during the COVID environment. I'm working from home. Almost everyone I know is doing the same. And it's very difficult in part exactly because of what you said. We are even less likely to have those breaks and boundaries. Although commuting does feel somewhat terrible, you know, it's one of the most negative moments in people's day. It's also a really important component, a really important period of time for self-reflection, to plan for the day ahead, to transition from our personal lives to our work lives. And we are do not currently have those kinds of natural breaks and transitions in the day. So this is a really important time management tip, I think, in general, but also specifically when working from home that we've observed in our data, is we're asking people to build in rituals and breaks and transitions not to work through their lunch breaks to have a mental commute or actually walk around the block as their commute before they go to their home office try to leave time in between meetings so that you can have those informal conversations with colleagues that go completely missing in the virtual environment so i think in general we need to be thinking about creating clear separation between work 
and personal life in part by managing our technology. But especially right now, we need to be mindful about being proactive in building in these barriers, breaks and transitions since we can't take them for granted as we might when we're going to the office physically and run into a colleague in the hallway. It's so true. And I will just say from a personal experience, you know, the beauty of Zoom is that we can literally speak with anyone in the world and, you know, honoring all the other platforms, WebEx, Cisco, Skype, you name it, right? Whatever the virtual platform is. But I think sometimes we are scheduled back to back to back and we don't allow ourselves to create those breaks that might have been the commute break from one building to another or a floor or just down the hall. And there is no sense of stopping and starting. It's just one perpetual meeting. And I have found I had to really um, have the courage to set those boundaries with colleagues. Have you experienced that? Yeah. And I think one thing that you're saying is really important is that we have to both empower ourselves and empower those that we work with to ask for time when they need it. We should imagine that everyone should be more time affluent than ever before. We're not commuting, but there's very real constraints that are making people time poor. You can't easily outsource things that you were outsourcing previously, like childcare, cooking, cleaning. Uh, people have additional childcare responsibilities, and instead of sub- instead of um, substituting that commute time uh, for leisure, people are substituting it with work because well yeah. since we're not all in the same place we should be showing commitment to our workplaces by being even more available than we were before if we were available 24 hours a day well now we'll be available 30 hours a day we're going to be available all the time so that my employer my colleagues know that I'm available and I'm committed to my job even while I'm working from home and so unfortunately the work from home environment is really heightening a lot of the tensions around work-life balance that we were observing pre-pandemic. And so it's very important that colleagues, managers, leaders establish clear norms of communication and abide to them themselves. So take paid vacation, especially right now. People are foregoing vacation because they say, well, what am I going to do anyway? But we really are burnt out and overwhelmed by things that are going on in the world right now, we need time to recharge now more than ever, but people are even more willing to forgo leisure than they were before. So as leaders, it's really important for us to establish a communication cadence that's very clear, to not break it, not email on the weekends, to take our vacation, to celebrate time off, and to normalize asking for more time on adjustable deadlines. So we have a whole research project devoted to this idea The one really important predictor of happiness and satisfaction, lower stress at work, particularly for junior employees, particularly for women, is asking for more time on adjustable deadlines. It produces higher quality work. It makes managers feel like people are more committed to their jobs and it reduces burnout. Yet junior uh, employees and women are especially reticent to ask for more time because they're worried about what that will signal. They're worried that it will make them seem like a bad employee. So we need to be setting norms in our organizations that make it really easy for people to ask for more time, to empower themselves, to take time off and to take breaks when they feel like they need it. 
I'm I'm so glad to hear you say that. And my perception as an executive coach working with clients um, around the country and, and some international leaders as well is that companies are becoming more comfortable with the virtual environment, especially if they didn't have work from home options, right? Or flexible options, because they realize, wow, the colleagues can do great high level work at home. I can trust them. I think there was a learning curve in the beginning and a proving ground, but my sense is some businesses are even pivoting saying, you know what, we might redefine the business model. This has some tremendous benefits and people really value flexibility. So I think it was difficult in the beginning, but the end result is looking quite positive. Have you experienced anything similar? Yeah, I think that working from home is generally positive because of the flexibility. But I think it also means that employers, managers do need to more actively help employees manage that working from home environment. What I've been observing in my data might come as no surprise to hear it is that working from home doesn't benefit everyone equally. Women yeah. are doing much more of the childcare and much more of the cleaning than men are right now. They have much less active leisure than they did before the pandemic, and they're feeling more overwhelmed as a result. So I think for virtual work to work for everyone, workplaces are going to need to think about some of the disparities that do come up in the virtual work environment for people who have young kids at home, uh, for individuals who might be taking on more of the responsibility around the home. So there is a great deal of research suggesting that chosen flexibility, not the forced experiment yeah. working from home that we're in right now, but chosen working from home does work well and can be a sustainable path to greater productivity and happier employees. But I think this experiment that we're all in of working from home uh, due to the pandemic is something that we're all going to need to make sure to work together to make uh, to make it such that everyone is benefiting from the work from home environment. You're absolutely right. Thank you for clarifying. And I think the other layer of stress too are, are, are families who are dealing with younger children who need that supervision with online learning, right? You can't just set them free and say, knock yourself out, right? You have a good day at school, even though it's in your bedroom. Uh, there's some supervision required to keep the kids engaged and on track. And that's a whole other layer. Absolutely. So Ashley, your book is incredible. It's called Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. And before I talk about how we can buy the book, tell me what's the what's the first baby step that you would recommend to our global audience? Obviously reading your book, but if they're going to embark on a journey to think about how they can reclaim their time, what's the first step? What should they start thinking about? The first step is to take a curious approach to how you spend time on an everyday basis. So in a non-judgmental way, start being mindful about how you spend your time. As I mentioned earlier, think about what activities bring you pleasure, what are a source of meaning, what's stressful. When do you find yourself wasting time? Why do you find yourself wasting time? Why are you actually engaging in those time-wasting behaviors? By starting to go through your life, inquiring about the way you spend time and how it's making you feel, that will help you go a long way in identifying the key areas that you could improve on to become more time affluent. And the beautiful phrase there is non-judgmental, right? So be kind to yourself, give yourself a break and take that reflection, but give yourself space and grace. Yes, definitely. 
Ashley, thank you. I learned so much from you. I want to reiterate your book is called Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. And of course, it's available on Amazon and at all major book retailers. And I strongly encourage our global listening audience to check it out. I wish you great success on the book tour. And I'm so grateful that you spent time with me today. Thank you so much. I really look forward to hearing everyone's thoughts and how they are going about in their own lives to live a more time smart and happier life. That's awesome, Ashley. Thank you so much. And if you like the show, subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. And even better, leave us a review because this helps new audience members find us online. And let me know what career-minded issues you would like for me to feature on a future show. You can find me on Twitter at C. Dowd Higgins. And a special thanks to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening.